0: to the charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, time for another podcast and time to discuss another book. Today, we're going to be talking about the book named Nehru, the debates that Defined India, which was co-authored by Tripur Daman and Adil. Guys, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having us, Kushal. Um, yeah, so it's a great pleasure.
0: As All well right, always. so Tripur, obviously, uh, you know, Everybody on the podcast knows about you. So Adil, today I'll request you as this is your first uh, time on the podcast. Why don't you tell everybody a bit about yourself?
2: Well, hi, everyone. My name is Adil. I'm originally from Pakistan. Um, So this book is uh, uh, the the uh, transnational collaboration that tries to bring uh, a fresh light on Nehru. Um, I'm an assistant professor in the Netherlands. I teach at Leiden Universities. Mainly topics related to law and politics, um, and I have a very big interest in anything that has to do with South Asia, um, from the 19th century to the present.
0: All right, so guys, let's start like this because this is—I I always like to ask this question to everybody when I talk about a book. So, obviously, first of all. This is uh, today. I'm going to start with a different question. So obviously, this is uh, uh, this book is unique in a sense that uh, one author is an Indian and one author is a Pakistani, and this book is about uh, a pivotal Indian figure. Whether you are pro Nehru or anti Nehru, that doesn't matter because Nehru is one of the most important figures in Indian politics and Indian political history. So, so my first question to both of you, and Tripur, you can take it, and then uh, maybe Adil can also come. So. How was the experience of writing this book together, first of all?
1: Um, it was interesting. I think um, it's, it, I had never co-written anything before. I don't think I've ever co-written anything before either. Uh, but it helped that we we were friends. We had a good working relationship. So both of us did our PhDs together. We've known each other for a long time. It uh, And that uh, it really helped have someone to be able to discuss your ideas, bounce your ideas off. Uh, and especially, I mean, normally it's always said that friendships end after co-writing a book together. But, you know, we're still here and um, we're still friends. So it's been, um, I think, I think a positive experience um, all around. And yeah, I hope I mean, that it feels the same. It,
2: it, it, was, it was good fun writing it together. And I do think what really helps is that if you, if you work on a project, it's much better to have somebody to work with well, you don't overlap in all of the opinions that you have, because that produces a creative tension. And with that creative tension, you just um, are able to turn around um, a much better work product. And at the end of the day, I mean, in the humanities, there's never been this grand tradition of co-writing. Yeah. So it's a very insular, sort of very isolated um, way and experience through which people produce books, right? I mean, you go away, you lock yourself off, and then you just write, and then you reappear with a magical book in your hand. So if you're in the academy, then you also discuss it at a bunch of conferences. But at the end of the day, it's a very, um, it's it's a very, um, it's an activity that you do as an individual by yourself. So having somebody else to do that with you, as it is the practice in most of the sciences, right, where they have like big collaborative teams who work on a project. um, In the humanities, they're still not there. But I do think that after writing this book, I can imagine even writing um, more books in a co-written format um, simply because. You don't have to go through the entire process um, yourself. You have somebody that you can bounce ideas off. Much smoother experience.
1: Yeah, and just, right. just kind of just just cutting in for a second, Pushal. Sorry, was also that I, it helped actually uh, because we were writing through the pandemic, and that really it yeah. uh, it really helped to have someone uh, to engage with at that level. Because otherwise, you know, we've all locked up. Uh, I was in India at one point, and then in Britain. Uh, and Adil, I think spent most of it in Germany mm. uh, so you know this it provided a crucial sort of lifeline for us to have intellectual engagement and also you know something to focus uh, our energies on and uh, that was also a very good thing
0: Alright so obviously the book has four debates uh, Iqbal Jinnah um, Patel and uh, uh, Shamar Prasad Mukherjee now I want to I don't know. I- I'm not saying you guys uh, structured the book that like this, but I don't know. Uh, is the book like kind of in two halves with, where Nehru with uh, two uh, A type of personalities and Nehru with two B type of personalities? Was there something like that in your mind when you guys were designing the book? It was much easier, Kushal.
2: It's chronological. So the first debates that happened with Iqbal just precede the ones that he had with Jinnah, precede the ones that he had with Patel. And then Mukherjee is really the last one. So essentially we went chronologically in order to map also the intellectual development and depth that Nehru um, sort of accrues as a thinker. So from his very naive engagements, and I would call them naive engagements that he has with Iqbal, where he says that, I don't understand this thing called religion that you guys are obsessing over. Why are you even doing this? Like, can we all just move on and start thinking in economic terms? Can we all move on and frame the problems that we face? Um, as Indians, um, as problems that are primarily stemming from colonialism, that are primarily stemming from capitalism, that are primarily forms of exploitations, regardless if it's the exploitation of caste, where you have Brahmins, which are sort of um, exploiting the lower ca- classes, or if it's the Hindu-Muslim question, which he refuses to acknowledge as a Hindu-Muslim mm-hmm. question, but you know, insists upon framing as a, um, as a question of economics. So I do think Nehru's thought also develops to then very complex um, ways of thinking about foreign policy in a globalized world from the mid-20th century onwards.
1: Yeah. and yes. uh, So again, sorry, I, I, I interrupt you. But no, no worries. Uh, it's a, a bit like, a, it's an also chronological, but it also ends, you know, at a point where Nehru is just about to step into, uh, you know, or near absolute power. So uh, we look at him in a period where also he had, he was forced really to uh, to engage with uh, with other people. He, there is no real engagement after that because also he doesn't need to. You know, he's the country has been formed and he is its unchallenged uh, supreme leader. Mm. Um, and so that provided a neat sort of uh, book ending um, to uh, to Nehru's kind of transformation from, you know, just starting out as a young, uh, you know, politician, up and coming politician to uh, becoming India's sort of unchallenged uh, leader. So, you know, there was a neat book ending on both sides.
0: So I want to pick this uh, now, you know, Adil mentioned something very important where when Iqbal and Nehru are actually interacting with each other, in fact, not just Iqbal and Nehru, I would say even Jinnah and Nehru, when they interact with each other through these letters, it's as if, I don't know, it came across to me, it it was as if that was happening. But let's focus more on Iqbal. Because was people with two completely different worldviews are just looking past each other. Uh, Iqbal clearly comes from a religious worldview. Uh, for for Iqbal, Muhammad Iqbal, uh, you know, his religious worldview, his understanding of Islam and the way he looks at the world through the prism of Islam was very important. And as Adil said, Nehru was like, what are you talking about? I mean, what religion? What? Religion who? Kind of a thing. Now, in a situation like this, now, let, let's let go th- like this because obviously the, the book is titled about Nehru and wh- where Nehru comes from and and I want to focus on that Now, my question to you is, did you, I mean, it comes off to me as a reader. I'm not saying that's what you guys intended, because obviously, you know, uh, uh, as they say, you know, the the authors may not intend to do certain things, but a reader can read and maybe take many things out. But to me, at times, Jawala Nehru comes off as stubborn and naive at the same time. Am I wrong?
2: I I wouldn't say that you're wrong. So I do think that um, these are two characteristics that also lead to a specific form of success in politics, right? I mean, being stubborn at the right moments and refusing to acknowledge in problems that people are pressing upon you. So having a certain type of naivete isn't necessarily a bad thing in politics. Like having these two things in combination may have also facilitated the rise of Nehru as this leading um, figure in, in India. But what the important thing is with Iqbal and Nehru is that they're actually not, that they're very far apart in their ideologies, the ways in which they, you know, make sense of the world. But at the same time, they also share um, the affinity to the English language. They share the affinity to culture. They're both educated at Cambridge. So there's a ton of stuff that should actually bring them much closer together in the way in which they look at the world. But still, there's this big discrepancy. Which mainly comes from Nehru's, um, at that point, a serious commitment to socialism. And Nehru's serious commitment to socialism is something that Iqbal simply cannot stomach. So Iqbal would go quite along with Nehru when it comes to uh, redistribution, when it comes to uplifting the poor, when it comes to solving the caste question through economic measures. Iqbal would be very close to Nehru, but then again, the moment. Um, Nehru moves into this um, mocking of religion, borderline mocking of religious rituals, of um, you know the mocking of the entire um, ideological structure that underpins any religion. He is where Iqbal departs and says like, okay, like we've had enough fun, but now we have to stop. And this is a serious matter. This is a matter that gives meaning to millions of people, millions of poor people who are living in our countries. And we can't simply just take it away because we've figured out a new formula According which to structure the world, which is this, you know, socialist Marxist sort of worldview, and now we're thinking that this is the only thing that should um, um, that should guide us in our progress for the next um, hundred years. So as opposed to that, Iqbal says no. Let's step back. Let's take religion seriously. And if we take religion seriously, there's a lot of good in it as well, which begins from the very belief in God and in the belief in Allah, which moves on to um, honoring the specific prophets that um, Allah has sent. In his case, the one Prophet that he's of course focusing on is the Prophet Muhammad, peace mm-hmm. be upon him. And then you know, on the other hand, you have Nehru who's just you know trying to um um trying to move towards this um, um new form of secularism that he's envisioned for India that goes hand in hand with this specific atheistic belief.
0: Yeah, so that interesting line I remember from your book was where you know, where you guys write. However, the most infamous lines of this interaction are the final words that Iqbal uttered just before Nehru left. In quotes, what is there in common between Jinnah and you? He's a politician and you are a patriot. I mean, was he insulting him or was he praising him? I mean, do you think Nehru would have taken this as an insult or as a praise that you're a patriot or a politician? I thought Nehru must have prided himself on being a good politician, right, Rippur?
1: I mean, he's treading a fine line. Nehru, I think, did take it as a as a compliment, uh, very much so. But I, 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 think Iqbal didn't really mean it as a as a compliment, to be honest, because Iqbal didn't think patriotism of the kind that Nehru uh, professed, uh, which necessarily meant a kind of divergence from the past and a kind of remaking, refashioning uh, of you know the community was was something that Iqbal was. Uh, uh, was very into. Um, and I think I think might. Yeah. You know, so to, I guess.
2: do think that Nehru got that it wasn't just a compliment to him. So I think he understood that much. So he didn't take it as an outright sort of compliment and said, like, oh my God, look at me. You know, here's Iqbal, who's praising me as being a real patriot. Whereas Jinnah, who, you know, later on claims to be holding the flag of Mohammed Iqbal. When he's asking for uh, Pakistan, when he's asking for another nation state for Muslims on Indian soil, um, that, you know, he's actually not the patriot, but the politician. But Nehru was Nehru was a patriot at a time when somebody like Iqbal thought that what India really needed was a cool headed political approach to solve problems. And Nehru was displaying a lot of passion. And um, part of the reason, I mean, it's a takeaway observation, but... Um, that Nehru spent so much time in jail is also partly owed to the fact that, you know, he stood up against the colonial state and tried to passionately disrupt it in moments that we can now say were maybe theatrical, that maybe had no impact on real policy, but he spent a lot of time in jail, whereas Jinnah never went to jail, apart from when he was visiting his clients as a a good uh, criminal defense attorney, as he sometimes was, um, that was something that he did. But apart from that, he never went to prison for sedition charges or for anything else. So I do think that um, um, Iqbal meant it both as a <laughs> both as a compliment and as a critique.
0: So now let's get into the most important difference of opinion between Iqbal and Nehru, which you guys uh, write. You say on more doctrinal points, Nehru promoted an inclusive nationalism and a democratic future with joint electorates. In contrast, Iqbal squarely focused on Muslim rights and their place in India's political and cultural landscape, which led him to endorse separate electorates and, a reserve, and reserve seats for Muslims. Now, here's, here's my question then. Uh, and I'll come first to you, Adil, and then Tripur, I want you to chime in too on this one. Um, uh, as I was reading the book, it, it is quite clear, and I, I, I don't know how else to put it, but somewhere down the line, I think Nehru comes from, uh, although Nehru quite clearly is a a serious hater of Hinduism, which is quite obvious, Uh, but uh, in spite of saying that, uh, Nehru did not realize how Hindu he was in his thinking, because only a person from a Hindu background would, would come up with points like what Nehru was doing uh, in, in spite of hating Hinduism so much Nehru really sucked at hating it because his whole worldview seems to be very Hindu while mm. Iqbal is very clearly coming from a very monotheistic worldview where there is a monotheistic way and and somewhere down the line I, I want to touch upon this there, there and I don't see this denial uh, um, on the monotheistic side I always see this denial uh, now look I, I'm monastic so I mean I don't see divine in anything But the point is that I do get the Hindu worldview and I do get the monotheistic worldviews because, you know, when you lose your divinity, you tend to read all religions. That's what I do to understand what's up with the the religious people. Now, it is quite clear that there is this unique thing that I find in polytheists or Hindus or whatever you want to call them. They seem to have a very different worldview. Everything is one. Everything is one. And the monotheists were like, no, 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 no. My God is the only God. Your God is not God. You just got it wrong, bro. And that debate between Iqbal and Nehru is actually a subset of what monotheism and let's say non-monotheistic faiths have a struggle. So do you think that that also had a play in this debate?
2: Actually, Gosha, that's a very good way of framing it because at the end of the day, in order to enter into any type of political relationship for Iqbal, what he was really pushing for was the acknowledgement of the monotheistic line. So the acknowledgement of Allah as one the acknowledgment of the prophet, um, peace be upon him, as its messenger, and then we can all be in one grouping, right? So then we can all be in one political community, or ummah, or however you want to call it. Whereas for Nehru, it was much more democratic lines, which was to say that everybody is equal, we're going to create this new political entity, which is going to be the Indian Republic, and then everybody will have like the same rights as individuals. Um, so I do think that you're framing it really well, but like the bigger the bigger question that these two guys are really battling out in the 1920s is the question of democracy itself. So Iqbal is much more of a realist. So despite his very sort of his worldview, which is um, deeply entrenched in um, belief and in his, the Islamic tradition, what we really have is that Iqbal stopped believing in the democracy that has already failed in Europe and he says it repeatedly. He says, we want democracy. We've just had the experiment in Europe. It's failed in a massive way. So all European states have gone to war. The First World War has just ended. Like the democratic experiment seems dead in the beginning of the 20th century. It doesn't seem like a good idea. So when Nehru is sort of... um, pushing and lobbying for democracy to be the solution to all the problems that India is facing and he's drawing it up in these sort of nice rosy terms that we're going to live together. There will be Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs and everybody will come together as one under the umbrella of the Indian nation. Then Iqbal is saying that this does not gel well with the experience that we've just seen globally where everybody was at each other's throat in the big wars that we've seen in Europe and all of the democracies essentially failed, right? I mean, all the democracies that came um, at that time um, didn't really last. So Iqbal is making that simple observation of saying that, what is it that we want in India? Do we want the replication of the European failure? Is that the idea, and if we don't want that, then let's think about which um, political unities we can create that are durable, that will last um, at least for some time before they dissolve. And he sees this in Islam. And then the big, controversies, uh, big controversy that he's having with Nehru is over the controversy of who belongs to Islam and who doesn't belong to Islam. Because then there's this small reformist movement, which is claiming to be Muslim. And Iqbal says, no, you can't call yourself that because we are this sort of body that has ascribed to certain rules. And since you don't ascribe by these rules, you can't claim membership in that body and you can't therefore also claim membership to the Muslim nation and therefore to a future sort of Islamic policy that may come out of that Muslim nation. Of course, it's important to say that we are in the 1930s now, so the idea of Pakistan isn't really fully developed. So people don't really know if that Muslim nation state is going to be born and what constitutional structure uh, India is going to take. But Nehru is pushing vehemently against Iqbal and he's saying that no, who are you to decide that? So it should be an open debate. If somebody thinks that they're Muslim, then they should be allowed to call themselves Muslim. So who put you, Muhammad Iqbal is what Nehru is saying, who put you in as the arbiter of, of the person who's able to determine who's Muslim or not? And that is essentially in a nutshell the debate that they're having. But on a broader scale, one could frame it as the debate between um
0: um, polytheism and monotheism. So then, Tripur, what, what would happen? Because obviously, a major chunk of the chapter is about the Ahmadiyya community, right? The the, the entire crux of the chapter uh, and the debate and the exchanges about the Ahmadiyyas where clearly Iqbal says that they're not Muslim, and Nehru comes again from his secularized Hindu worldview. Uh, I'm saying, and, and what's what comes across in the entire discussion is how shocked Nehru is about how can Iqbal even say something like this? That that comes across in Nehru's letters. And how shocked Iqbal is, that, hang on, the book says this. This is it. This is the truth. This is my religion. Why are you so shocked? So, Tripur, so, how, how actually... How did you feel when you were reading this?
1: Um, No, a bit. I mean, they they were uh, um, at the risk of sounding uh, slightly blasphemous. Uh, They were a revelation. Um, And uh, they were a revelation also to see, because, you know, there's been uh, actually a lot of Marxist sort of critique of Nehru that actually, in, in a similar vein, that Nehru's worldview was actually Hindu, but also that sociologically, you know, Ah uh, politics rested on 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 Hinduism as well. Um, so uh, it in some ways, this is uh, almost a confirmation of that. But in others, it's also interesting to see, again, uh, is it's interesting to frame it in you know, terms of monotheism and polytheism. but what also what Nehru is saying is that you essentially that you shouldn't really be in this is not really a matter. Uh, for for the law, right? So this is something uh, he's calling for a, essentially a divorce between, um, between religion and mm-hmm. the sort of political sphere, because he doesn't... Inviting the state into uh, a, a sort of space where it gets to define who is or is not a member of a particular religious community is both handing um, a, a sort of obscene amount of power to the colonial state, which Nehru is uh, wary of doing, interestingly, and that's interesting, especially when you look at it in terms of what he does later on. Uh, And secondly, is uh, that he's also wary of uh, kind of empowering, um, because once you do get into that position, you basically empower uh, a particular kind of religious orthodoxy. And so um, in some ways, it's also a kind of opening salvo of uh, of Nehru's religious worldview, and you see that really shape up when the question of Nehruvian secularism sort of develops uh, much later during the during the time of independence. And I think this, you know, Abhil can correct me if I'm wrong, is that this debate feeds in very much into framing uh, framing the Nehruvian idea of religion.
2: Yeah, just to just to add to that, so it's important for context for the listeners who haven't. Um engaged with the question much, but Iqbal is asking for a constitutional exclusion of the Ahmadis from calling themselves Muslims. So he's asking the colonial states to step in and ban Ahmadis from calling themselves Muslims. And this, of course, to Nehru, sounds like a ridiculous suggestion. First of all, because anything where you ask the colonial state to intervene means there's less power for native indians to decide their own matters right so the big thing has always been that what can indians indians decide themselves and what can the colonial state decide so religion has always been one of the few spheres where the colonial state didn't intervene to the same extent as it did in other matters so whenever um anything was framed as religious people could do it and you know the colonial state would sort of step back and now iqbal is asking for the very colonial state to step in and regulate religion. And that seems outrageous to Nehru. And it seems outrageous, not so much because he has like an in-depth knowledge of Islamic theology and he feels that he's going to make a very strong theological argument within Islam. Um, But it's very important to him because he looks at the Hindu orthodoxy and he looks at the Brahmins of Banaras and the Arya Samaj. And he says that, well, with the same logic, the orthodox elements within Hinduism, would ban the Arya Samaj for trying to reform the faith. And in this way, you would have a sort of static idea of what Hinduism stands for. And because the Hinduism would become static, it would never change. And his big sort of economic plans would never be, he would never be able to translate his big economic plans into action. So for Nehu, a lot of the sort of bigger issues get sort of caught up into this smallish, theological debate amongst Muslims that Iqbal is stirring right and therefore you also get the confusion of Iqbal a little bit when Nehru steps in because he doesn't expect him to so Iqbal is thinking that he's having an internal debate with other Muslim clerics and next thing you know one of the most famous politicians steps in and says like oh now let's write each other letters over this issue
0: and 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 I think it is it is natural that Iqbal would find it uh confusing is because. Uh... I don't know how to say it, but Iqbal comes across as a very standard Orthodox religious guy who, who, uh, I mean, like you guys write, uh, you know, the Indian mind will then seek some other substitute for religion, which is likely to be nothing less than the form of atheistic materialism, which has appeared in Russia. So basically Iqbal clearly had an allergy to liberalism and liberal values and Western values and secularism, because his whole idea was that. Islam comes first and everything streams downstream from that understanding about the supremacy of Islam and Islamic ideas. And here comes Mr. Nehru, uh, who seems to be a little too famous for my liking. And if he's going to question this, I mean, Nehru's argumentation was spot on. He's like, look, if I allow this then I have to allow the same logic to every community. And then, as they say, shit will hit the roof. And and that's, that's problematic. So Nehru's interjection in that point of view, I mean, at least in my head, because I completely uh, look at it myself as a person who is, uh, you know, who's pro-secularism as far as governance is concerned. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's very natural that Nehru would have a problem. But the, the fundamental thing that, the one thing they both had in common was that, they both were not fond of America, right? In a very weird sort of way. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's an
1: interesting point. But yeah, true. Um, also, just, uh, I mean, another thing about Iqbal is also very much Iqbal sees the fall of uh, the growth of a secular consciousness uh, is what allows also for the splintering of community. And uh, uh, the splintering of community is what effectively leads to violence. I mean, that's how he frames Europe. Uh, and that's what he thinks will, uh, could, unfold, uh, could unfold in India as well. And that's um, intellectually it's a very, not a weak yeah. construct. Like, yeah. Intellectually, it's um,
2: not a weak way of um, thinking about these issues. So both men and that's what we try to really bring out in this chapter. Both men stand on very solid ground in their respective worldviews. And um, you've made like a normative um, um, assessment by saying that, well, everything that Nehru is saying is very sound, but um, on the other hand, everything that Iqbal is saying is also a very good interpretation of the ways in which modernity has alienated um, people from religion and left them with a certain void. Um, So I would say that both of these positions um, are equally equally, um, sound and can equally be argued where Iqbal, of course, goes a little bit um, outside of that, is asking the very bureaucratic structure of the colonial state to step in. This is where it gets strange, right? So this is where one could say that, wasn't there another solution to solve this issue? And Iqbal says there isn't. So Iqbal says either it's this, or it's persecution in the style that we've seen during the trial of uh, of Jesus Christ in the Roman age. So either it's that type of justice, or it's constitutional exclusion. And there's probably a hundred other ways to um, to intellectually solve this issue um, without resorting to both of these extreme measures, and Iqbal refuses to acknowledge the existence of any of those measures. But Nehru yeah. seems to be pushing him on the wrong points because Nehru is pushing him on the sort of greater point of um, what will happen if other communities yes. adopt the same statue, which of course Iqbal wouldn't be interested in, right? The moment you see the only interest that you have in producing solidarity amongst Muslims, then you are no longer interested in what is really going to happen to other communities. You're primarily focused on producing solidarity amongst Muslims. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you know, another thing that shows how little, and, and again, I say this... Uh, i don't know people might find this a unique hindu disorder and and it comes across uh, when nehru says this where you know he says orthodoxy ultimately becomes One's own doxy and the other person's doxy is heterodoxy. If such an authority is established, it will deal presumably with the Muslims alone. But Islam is a proselytizing religion, and questions touching other faiths will frequently arise. Even now, doubtful cases arise, especially relating to girls and women with little thought of religion, marry a Muslim or elope with him, or are abducted by him. If they slide back from the strict path of the faith, are they subjected to the terrible punishment for apostasy? It, this, this, this whole thing again, people. And I have noticed this happening not so much with the Muslim side. It is is typically in the Hindu side is because Hindus are trained in a very different faith structure. They are taught to digest any new deity, make it a part of their pantheon. and, And when they suddenly find an exclusivist meme... Because that's what it is. Look, religions are memes and memeplexes. So this is a battle of two different memes in the evolutionary playfield, right? Two memes are fighting. One meme says only my claim is the only true claim, and I'm gonna come in the playground. And here's the other claim that says, okay, that's fine. I'll I'll take your claim and my claim, and let's play around. And and this stems uh, from that. But you know, a live viewer has asked a very interesting question, and I wanted to ask you guys. So triple first to you. Somebody has asked this, Iqbal and Nehru's common Kashmiri heritage ever factor in their relationship or con- conversation significantly?
1: Um, I think Adil is a lot better qualified than me to I answer that I mean, surprisingly,
2: concept, no. So... Surprisingly, no. Because even though Iqbal has like a ton of poetry that he's written, um, you know, remembering his own Brahmanical heritage that is from Kashmir, mm-hmm. And Nehu famously, he never made a secret out of his own Brahmanical, um, Kashmiri Brahmanical lineage. But when they're communicating with each other, it doesn't really feature in any kind of substantive way. Because Iqbal, at that point of his life, I mean, there's multiple ways of looking at Iqbal's intellectual development. But at that point, he seems to have moved away from the sort of... um, um, from the sort of very inclusive ideas that he had early on, where he was um, much more drawn to the syncretic culture of India and much more drawn to the um, complexities that form his own identity, right? Being Kashmiri, being um, from a, a Brahminical stock, then convert, like his forefathers converted to Islam, etc. So he had given that up by then. So, And he had, um, in, in, a, in a way, taken a much stronger... Um, Islamic, you called it orthodox, but it's a standard conservative position and it's not just happening in India. So many conservative thinkers around the globe take very, very similar positions to the one that Iqbal took. Um, But yeah, one would think that maybe if they have, if they had more time in order to uh, spend together, I'm sure this would have come up, Um, but no, they never talked about their similarities. Otherwise, they could have also talked about their Cambridge years. But also that never became a topic between the
0: two. One more thing that stood out to me, Tripur, because this is very glaring from the point of view of current Indian political discourse, is the whole thing about civil courts. That that bit in their discussion where Nehru actually... In his replies, this, you know, uh, I'm going to read it. The demand that only a Muslim should administer the it seems reasonable for non-Muslims can hardly enter into its territory. If Muslims have their separate courts with their Qazis, there is no valid ground for refusing the same privilege to the Hindus or any other religious group. We shall thus have a number of courts of law functioning independently in each geographical area for each separate group. It will be something like the capitulation of semi-colonial countries but in a greatly exaggerated form for the whole population will be divided up and not merely by some foreigners. Perhaps that will be a logical development of our communal separate electorates. And then he adds one more line where he says, the choice between two courts might have serious consequences for the punishments might greatly vary between them. Now, here's the classic case of current Indian landscape and current Indian discourse report. You know it better than anyone. We all know what happens in India where, you know, in India, it's a unique case where. no, I mean the so-called right-wing, far-nationalist, whatever you want to call them. I mean everybody seems to have their own definitions. Seems to be talking about a uniform civil code, and everybody on the left that should be for a uniform civil code in India seems to be opposing it. But this debate seems right off the handbook of Iqbal and Nehru. It's the same bloody debate then. the funny thing is Nehru's party today opposes the uniform civil code, and Nehru at that time was like, Are agar ye karenge to aise hoega. So how did it feel, Tripur, as looking at current Indian political debates and here it was Nehru debating about a civil code with Iqbal at that time?
1: I mean, you're right. They're, they are the same debates. And that's also one of the reasons that we wrote this book is that these debates are ongoing. They didn't, uh, you know, they, there hasn't been closure the way one would have imagined. And um, it's interesting to see that, uh, you know, that these questions keep coming up repeatedly um, in India and uh, we are still, we're still looking at them. We're not, you know, we still, there still is no consensus and um, you're, you're right about, uh, about how you frame it because um, uh, you see this in like multiple dimensions uh, is how actually. Nehru's own posi- first Nehru's own position changes, uh, but also the way like modern Indian sort of political formations function uh, is that uh, everything seems to have turned one eighty degrees. Those who uh, those who were arguing for it and are arguing against it, and those who were arguing against it will you know argue for it. And it's the only uh, the only way to really frame it is either to say well you know actually. Uh, There was no firm ideological position, and so it was all, uh, uh, it's all simply about, um, you know, what can get, you know, there are instrumental reasons behind everything. Uh, Or it is to take it seriously and to think, well, what is it that's driving, um, what is it that's driving these, uh, these positions? And if you do take it seriously, then, you know, the answers you get are not the most comforting.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the, the only odd thing about Nehru and his legacy is that Nehru did get some sort of a religious reform bill, but he only applied it on the Hindus with the 1950s and the Hindu code bill that came in India. And you know what? Nehru actually did a kind of in the end agree with Iqbal, right? He did have separate religious codes for religious people. Now, now again, someone as, who who believes in, in a uniform civil code. Yeah, I'm just just
1: sort of quickly butting in, is that Nehru's own position uh, undergoes a shift post-partition. So even though he doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't undergo a metamorphosis, so he doesn't suddenly start taking religion seriously, uh, but he does gain a sort of appreciation of, of, you know, what sort of power uh, religion has. And he recognizes that, uh, and this is a a crucial point of difference between him and Patel, is that he recognizes... Uh, that for his greater project of secularism, uh, and that and it's that's closely tied to his greater project, internationalist project. Uh, you know, he India has to be uh, a safe home for Muslims, and that's the onus is upon him uh, to kind of uh, make it so for them. And so that that shift definitely occurs, and you see it when you look at chapter three as well, because. Uh, when they're talking about Pakistan and uh, what's happening in East Pakistan and India's relationship, uh, you know, in that context, um, you know, Patel says that it's incumbent on Indian Muslims now to, uh, uh, given the past and given the misgivings that a lot of Indians have, it is incumbent on Indian Muslims to now prove their loyalty uh, to the new nation. Uh, And Nehru disagrees with him vehemently. So um, that the role that partition plays uh, and but not just partition, also Nehru's internationalist project, uh, plays in kind of transforming his position vis-a-vis uh, uh, religious law, uh, but especially religious law when it comes to the Muslims, um, is is important to keep in mind. I mean, just to briefly provide like a context
2: to this, because the issue is, is kind of the following. So the British came in, they brought their own laws. Right. So this is early. Years of colonialism and the latter years of colonialism in the mid 19th century, they've tried to write all code that was going to be implemented in India in London. So everything was imported, you know, as a, you know, somehow as a revelation that was to guide the people of India. Now those res- revelations they said were universal. So if you read up stuff from Mill and Bentham and all of these early sort of legal philosophers who try to think a structure for India, they just saw Indians as know, sort of individuals without looking at their identity at any depth. So the first move that we had of Indian intellectuals was to push back and take back some of the rights. Those were the religious rights, right? I mean, the family law, all of these things, they carved out small niches for themselves, where they said that the colonial state cannot intervene in this, we are going to regulate this ourselves. And our history
1: yeah. matters, and our equally, identity matters. Equally, the colonial state also stepped back post 1857 uh, because they, you know, uh, from its sort of reformist zeal, to say actually, you know, maybe they're right, and we will let this is where they long, yeah. So then
2: they said, okay, your history matters, you mm-hmm. know the sort of cultural pe- peculiar, uh, pe- um, sp- specificities that you yeah. guys have, those things are important. And we're going to allow you to regulate this yourself. Now, at the time when Nehru came into maturity, um, there was stuff that the age of consent for marriage was very low. So he looked at this and said like, well, we may have been able to regulate these things ourselves, but they're not good. So they should be set higher, like the age of consent should be set at 16, as opposed to 14, 12 or whatever it was earlier. And then he had pushback back from both the reformist people, so both from the Arya Samaj, from the Hindu Mahasabha, and from the Orthodox factions, right? So this is no longer Nehru who is trying to side with the Arya Samaj against the Orthodoxy um, in Banaras, but this is Nehru actually pushing against all people who try to have a religiously tinted family code. And he's saying that, no, let's have a universal one that is going to apply to everybody and where the age limit will be set, where divorce um, proceedings will be set. So Muslims can't have their own ways of um, going along with the divorce and where inherent um, structures will also be universal amongst um, all the different sects. And he received a lot of pushback from that, even from early nationalists. Yeah. So from people yeah. who still <laughs> remembered that they had to fight for those rights in order to even be able to regulate them, and they didn't want the colonial state to step in. So when we think about um, the universe, the the, um, um, uh, the universal sort of um, um, civil code structure that is always in debate, we also have to keep in mind that. The way in which you position yourself also has to do with what kind of structure is sort of ruling. During the early years of colonialism, I do think it made a lot of sense for Indians to sort of stand up and say that, no, we want, we are not going to allow Whitehall to regulate every single thing that we do. But we have a culture, we are people of history, and therefore we want to assert ourselves. Did it make sense for Nehru to sort of push up the age of consent? Definitely it did. Definitely it was a valid sort of course in order to push that up. But it's always a balance from which we have to see it. It's also, you know, people change their position over time.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, the colonial state also changed its position over time. And it's also uh, just to kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, add to what Adil said, is that the legal, it's interesting, the legal structures of pre-colonial India uh, were no different. So the idea Mm -hmm. of, of, you know, standardized uh, codes or, you know, even codified law itself, uh, was very much a kind of Western imposition. So during pre-colonial times, you did have these sort of multiple, overlapping jurisdictional, uh, uh, you know, uh, networks, and um, no one thought that there was anything wrong with them. So there is there is very much a kind of historical tradition uh, that um, speaks to uh, that speaks to Indians um, in in that way, and it continues to do so. You see that a lot of uh, uh, a lot of actual um, you know, quasi-legal work happens beyond the jurisdictional boundaries of the Indian state, and equally Pakistan, the Pakistani state, uh, where, you know, people will go to religious leaders, etc., to sort out disputes, etc., and in India, even arbitrate, because, you know, the courts are full. If you go to the court, uh, you'll spend 50 years arbitrating, like, you know, uh, a, a civil suit, uh, sorting out a civil suit. So there are these kind of mechanisms, panchayats, Uh, Which um, Mm. which will often kind of uh, what you know in sort of local parlance is often called a Razinama where two people might even have a litigation over you know someone accusing someone of you know beating them up or something will come to come to an agreement and then go and give a report to the police and say well I take my report case back and so on Mm. and so forth. So um, it's important also when we talk about this to remember that there is a historical trajectory and quite a deep historical memory. Uh, that to draw on this idea that there are multiple sort of jurisdictional nodes uh, and multiple kind of yeah. Uh, nodes.
0: I don't know. I don't know how to put it, but uh, uh, this is my culmination of the first three chapters of your book, because a lot of the first three chapters are cultural, political, and national security. Obviously with Patel, it's a lot about national security and the China issue too. But so just in a generalized way about Nehru, you know what comes across is, I think there's a way, as it, it, he comes across as a very confused politician. Now, I don't know what could be the reasons of his. Maybe the partition gave him a body blow and he, le- he learned his lesson, but he really did not learn his lesson at the same time, right? Because he did shove the Hindu code bill down the throats of Hindus. So if he was to be consistent uh, in understanding the value structures and look, we can't just push things down or we can't push modernity uh, down the throats of people, he would have applied the same logic to Hindus. But he did not. He put his foot down. By the way, I'm very happy he put his foot down when it came to the Hindu court bill. I would just have been happier if he had put his foot down on a, you know, you know universal civil court, uh, uniform civil court. The, the point is that it just comes across as, you know. It is not so like any other politician, you know, Nehru conveniently changes the goalpost. I don't know. I mean, that's what comes across to me. It's like, uh, you know, today I am a idealist when I'm writing letters to Iqbal. It's, it's quite a bit, right? He says... Uh, You know, oh, you know, the so-called reform movements will, of course, be frowned upon or suppressed. The long tentacles of the law of sedition may grow longer still and new crimes may be created. Thus, to advocate the abolition of the parda veil by Muslim, by women might uh, from the Muslim side be made into an offense. To preach the loosening of caste restrictions or interdining might from the Sanatanist side be also made criminal. Beards maybe become de, de rigour for Muslims, caste marks and top knots for Hindus. And of course, all the Orthodox of all shapes and hues would join in the worship and service of property, especially the extensive and wealthy properties and endowments. But here's the problem. When the rubber meets the road, he caves in for the Muslims and he rams through the Hindus. Now, if, I, if the Hindus in this country were to read the political history and they will read this book, they're naturally going to be pissed off at him. There is no other way around it, at least in my view. It's like, look, be consistent, man. At least at, if you have a consistent worldview, I get it. There isn't, you know, a religious worldview and religious people believe in their religious ideology. I completely understand where that comes from. But as a moral objectivist, I just believe sometimes some modern values are just better. That's just the way I am. I believe modernity is better Then. You know, many things when religiosity comes from. And I'm, I'm not one of those neo-atheists who thinks, you know, religion is a mind virus in the Dakinian mold or something of that sort. I see religion as a lot of value too. But my point is then, how am I supposed to respect Nehru in this aspect where he's not even consistent in his own standards then?
1: Um, I mean, so one way, and as we argue in the introduction, is to also look at Nehru's debates uh, and kind of read them with the lens of instrumental rationality. So while these are ultimately ideological debates, uh, they are also very much, uh, they're they're happening very publicly. So it's also very much Nehru intervening uh, in kind of positioning himself uh, in the public space, uh, you know, testing out political ideas, uh, seeing what uh, also, you know, um, one of the motivations is to also positioning himself for political power to see what will, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, he's also a politician. He is also oriented towards acquiring power, towards consolidating power, towards utilizing power. And um, so those are also very much considerations. And it's important not to lose sight of those considerations because, is not, uh, um, and none of these people are uh, out and out, uh, uh, you know, philosophers for the sake of philosophy. They're not there to, you know, sit in the ivory tower as uh, um, as philosophers are often accused of doing and simply pontificate. They're positioning themselves in in the political field. They are all Nehru, uh, Jinnah, um, uh, maybe, equal to a certain extent, or maybe not. But you know, Patel. Mukherjee, are all uh, there in, you know, they're participants in the game of power they are also positioning themselves and trying to acquire, to consult, like, these are considerations for all of them and I think that's, uh, that's, those instrumental considerations are, uh, uh, are really one of them. I is not about to say, well, you know, for the sake of my philosophical belief, uh, I'm going to do something that's going to, you know, make sure, make me lose my chair as uh, prime minister, or going to deny me uh, the chair of prime minister that I, you know, uh, craved. So that is very much something to bear in mind. And I think goes somewhat towards answering your question, and maybe Atil might, you know, perhaps want to. I mean, you, you,
2: your questions seem to be directed in—I um, mean—against Nehru to the extent that you say he was soft, or softer on Muslims than he was to his own um, community. In the sense, no, that was- I think
0: he was inconsistent. Is my point of view. He could have been soft on everyone, and I don't mind the Inca consistency there. I mean, I just think the inconsistency yeah. baffles me.
2: I, mean, I do think what happened really with Nehru is that after partition, he did get shaken, right? Because he's misread the situation royally. And it led to the breakup of the country, mass violence, killings. Um, and I think what happened afterwards is that the Muslim population in India um, went from being a very powerful minority, a minority that had a um, quite a bit of heft, to a minority that was now just that, just a minority. So with I think with its leadership gone, with... Uh, with a lot yeah. of things, I mean, more than the leadership, also a lot of the self-respect that came from being um, Indian, of having their temples, uh, their mosques, etc., um, on this land, but also of losing a political voice. Yeah. Like what happened to the Muslim political voice immediately after partition? So I do think that Nehru tried to incorporate them in a specific manner, which led to him being um, more lenient towards the Muslim population, than maybe he was to say orthodox elements that he saw, that he wanted to smash within the sort of Hindu population at large. But that's a very understandable sort of positioning. I don't find that um, in any way um, in, in any way inconsistent to the extent that I would say that that's a character flaw. But rather, I would I would say that it's, it's very much consistent if you look at it from the perspective of what happened um, and the ways in which Nehru could react.
1: Um, Nehru again, just again bouncing off the deal. I mean, Nehru never took the position that someone like Ambedkar did, uh, which was to say, well, actually, that these people can't live together. So once we have partition, we should, there should be a clean separation of, uh, you know, transfer population. So Nehru didn't have that uh, position, and after partition, he also very much kind of feels uh, he's committed to the idea of the sort of great secular Indian state. Uh, and you can't have great secular Indian state uh, if you say, well, you know, the Muslims either have to uh, be, um, as Abil said, you know, they're leading, they're sort of the Muslim political voice is subdued, their leaders all go to Pakistan. There's there is uh, there's there's no one left, and Nehru recognizes that, uh, and he also recognizes that for creating this sort of uh, uh, there's also a question mark that hangs over the Muslims that remain, right? So with with uh, someone like Patel articulates very firmly when he says it's now incumbent upon them to prove their loyalty to uh, to the new nation state, given their past association with the demand for Pakistan. Because in 1946, the Muslim League had swept the Muslim seats, so all of uh, all of the Muslims had voted uh, for it, uh, and they'd voted for Pakistan. So after Pakistan is formed, and Patel is not alone. I mean, that's I guess he represents in a way majority opinion in India. Uh, to say that it's now incumbent on the Muslims that remain to prove, to actively, proactively, like prove that uh, uh, they're loyal to the new uh, nation state. Um, but for Nehru, who believes uh, in the sort of project of Nehruvian secularism, um, it's a very Nehruvian project. It's you know, it, it highly unlikely it would have taken the shape it did, uh, but for Nehru being at the helm of affairs and there's also an internationalist dimension to it was because Nehru also prizes his image as a great democratic statesman leading uh uh, you know newly independent secular India and none of those things are really possible if either you kick the Muslims out uh, or you create a situation where they feel persecuted um, rightly or wrongly Uh, and Nehru recognizes these so there are like several aspects he, he very much recognizes this um so he uh he thinks that he doesn't think that there's any dichotomy between uh, the national interest and the kind of end goal of Nehruvian secularism. So I think, you know, maybe mm. maybe that answers it somewhat.
0: Yeah, so so somebody, again, who's watching this live has asked this question, who is more arrogant and intransigent um uh, in their worldviews. Nehru, Iqbal, Patel, who was it? Uh... <laughs> um, I mean, I think, do you
1: want to say, I mean, from my side, I would always say Jinnah was probably the uh, most intransigent of,
2: uh, I mean, in terms of, of arrogance, of. I've always had this, um, you know, the conventional understanding of Jinnah is this cold-blooded constitutional lawyer, who sees everything in transactional terms, tries to get the best deal for Indian Muslims and plays this um, high-stake poker game um, with the Congress party, eventually leaves and creates his own nation state, Um, is completely um, also at a distance of the violence that is happening during partition. The only time he cries is when his wife dies you know, at the grave and even that is like a big event where people have known him saying, oh, my God, Jinnah just cried. So th- that entire portrayal I've never been convinced with, because even given the the communication that he has with Nehru that we focus on in the book shows a very human Jinnah. It shows a Jinnah who really has a, t- a lot of passion, who goes into these debates with an open mind, who's not a stifler when it comes to the law and says that, oh, everything has to happen according to um, you know specific legal points. In fact, it's Nehru in his debate with Jinnah who keeps coming up with like this list of 14, 15, 16 points that he has made and he says, okay, let's discuss everything one by one. Let's go through this like point by point point. and Jinnah saying that listen, this is not really what's at stake here. It's essentially a much bigger debate that is about you know two nations and the ability of them to be living together. And Nehru keeps coming back to us, but what do you want? Like, is this what you want? Is this point what you want? And Jinnah being really the person who moves away from any type of sort of um, large-scale textual engagement as Nehru wants it to be. So I do think there's a lot of injustice that has been done by many books that have been written on Jinnah that have portrayed him as this um, hyper-rational, hyper-detached, hyper-anglicized constitutional lawyer. Um, And... Of course, if we have that image of Jinnah, then yes, he wins any um, debate regarding on who the most um, arrogant person um, in the the leadership of Indian politics was in the in the in the early and mid 20th century. Um, But I do think that the person who who was very much um, who invested a great amount of time and effort in cultivating his own image. And who was very much reading up what other people were thinking about him? That was Nehru. Yeah. No, no, he was I mean, obsessed Nehru was with what other people yes. wrote about him. He was obsessed with the way in which he wanted to portray himself. He was obsessed
1: over, everywhere. Like what, I yeah. mean, as we, as, as we <laughs> also write in the third chapter, is that a lot of Indian diplomacy, um, and partly there were reasons why uh, Indian diplomacy functioned the way it did, but a lot of it went to cultivating uh, Nehru's image as this sort of global statesman. I mean, yes, it covered for the material deficiencies in, uh, uh, in, you know, in in India's case. But, uh, yeah, that's... If, I, if, if Google Alerts would have existed at that time, Nehru would have typed
2: in his name and read up on every single line that is published about him globally.
1: So yeah. that, is, that is him. Whereas Jinnah wouldn't have done that, I think. So, but the, I was going to say also that one can understand where Jinnah is coming from in a way because it's a very traditionalist sense, right? Jinnah is uh, often Nehru's father's <laughs> generation. You know, he's worked with Nehru's father. He uh, he you know was widely seen as you know the successor to the previous generation of congressmen, to Gokhale and Nehruji, and you know, uh, or you know, and so and. If
2: Gandhi hadn't stepped yes, in, he, he would have, have taken done. over the Congress Party in the 1920s, what many people yes. believe, and it's
1: probably... And been he them. was, uh, you know, to then see what this, uh, what in Jinnah's eyes was a kind of young brash upstart who had no credibility, nothing to show uh, for himself, right? No professional or political achievement to show for himself. Uh, basically writing to you and saying, now explain your position to me and let's discuss whether we can meet, uh, you know, what, <laughs> what meeting grounds are, etc., uh, and then also keep writing and saying, you know, but I don't understand what you're saying. Please explain yourself <laughs> clearly on paragraph three. Did you read point six well? What do you think of point six? You know, so you can understand. Uh, you know, where in a, in a way that's the way. Like, um, you know, if I had an elderly uncle who was also an academic, and uh, you know, I wrote this these sort of letters to him, I would expect him to react the way Jinnah did. Um, so while I do feel Jinnah has a sense of arrogance, etc. Um, there's an understanding that I have, that you know, I can un- also understand where he's coming from vis-à-vis Nehru, uh, but Nehru's own sort of vanity, and we allude to it in chapter three, is um, is is also very strong, very very strong.
0: Yeah, nobody loves Nehru like Nauri. Nehru loves Nehru. That that's what comes across. But also,
1: that's that's a line. That's a line. <laughs> if you see chapter three, and that is, uh, um, and I quote Richard Nixon, who was vice president. Uh, at that point in time who we'll meets Nehru and says Mr. Nehru doesn't like the us the Mr. Nehru doesn't like the USSR, Mr. Nehru doesn't like the uk. Mr Nehru only likes Mr. Nehru right? and
0: <laughs> this,
1: is, this is Richard Nixon um talking so
0: <laughs> no no, no. To... and I can completely relate to it by reading the book
2: but just to briefly add to this, like Nehru's um dislike of the Soviet Union really came from the idea that, No, but both the USSR and the um, United States. So he had a dislike for both of these um, countries because what he wanted to prove was that there was a third way and he was, you know, the progenitor of this third way.
1: No, but But he did not like anyone else claiming that they were the progenitor of the third way. So um, Mm. one of the things that happens, and this is funny, is, and again, i allude to chapter 3, um, is that Nehru gets very upset when um, Liaquat Ali Khan is invited to the U.S. and given a state visit and is accorded the same uh, sort of reception at the White House uh, because he sees it as a, uh, as essentially as um, an inordinate amount of prestige being accorded to Liaquat Ali Khan, which only he is deserving of. Um, and so there's, you know, there's constantly that sort of that that subtext is also very much
0: there. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know what surprises yeah. me about Nehru's reaction is that it's quite clear from the distinguishing, uh, you know, the, the uh, debates that he had with these these two Jinnah and Iqbal, that he knew that Pakistan was coming. It's quite clear that he knew it. It was not as if he did not have an idea that Pakistan was coming. But one thing that I don't know if it came across to you guys nehru's debates with Iqbal were fundamental ideological philosophical nehru's debates with jinnah i don't have any other word other than a hindi urdu line which is called balki khalukhadna mm-hmm. it was literally that's what explains their exchanges like nehru will be like you have said this over here and jinnah would be like padhna nahi jante ho beta <laughs> and that's literally what China's reply to him is like. Liya karo kabhi? And then he would also. So it's basically two people talking past each other. In fact, it is very annoying to someone to read, right? Is it like and they seem to be either they are purposely being facetious, I don't know, because uh, it's going on record and nobody wants to yield. But but now I want to come to another thing. Like uh what do you guys make? What what was Nehru in the classical sense? Was he a patriot or a nationalist? And and did you think he had a very clear national vision?
2: Um, just to just to come back to the Jinnah Nehru point that you just raised. So what I found um very intriguing is that um, Nehru's approach to Jinnah was the same approach that he had to Gandhi. So if you read the communication that he has with Gandhi then it's very much in the same way where he's saying that, oh, you've said this, what did you mean by that? What did you mean by X? What did you mean by Y? I'm just a naive student of yours. Gandhi reacted very differently to Nehru. So Gandhi would then say, yes, I'm the wise old man. Let me now explain to you what I mean. So I do think that for for Nehru, even though he had um, grown up and he was a man in his uh, 40s and 50s, what had never happened is that he still saw himself as this sort of... um, very juvenile figure who could just appear somewhere and just ask the elderly for advice and they would just sit down and give him like long pages of advice of how he should react and then he would make the decision however he pleased. So I do feel that that very approach that he has to Jinnah isn't really because he wants to be facetious or anything, but it's literally because that's how he knows how to approach um, Gandhi. He approaches him in the same way. Gandhi just reacts very differently because Gandhi loves that type of attention. So Gandhi would just say that, oh, thank you so much for asking, young man. Now let me write another 40 pages on what I mean by that, right? So Jinnah is a lawyer who's paid by the hour his entire life. He doesn't have time for any of that, right? So he says like, my hourly rate is very, very high and I don't have time to now sit down and explain to you things that are very basic that you could learn by just picking up the newspaper and reading what is going on in our country. So why am I in a position to explain everything to you. Like, who put me in that position? Why should I do it? And I think that type of dynamic really, really is what leads Nehru to continuously write in that type of very strange, like it's a very strange way of communicating, I feel. Um, yeah. And to your second question, if Nehu was a nationalist or a patriot, he was, um, was um, both, of course, right? do oh, you yeah. uh,
0: really think he had a national vision tripper uh
1: yeah yeah no he very much did and he had it even before he gained executive power he actually was one of these people who uh uh in a way had a very strong sense of uh, uh almost his own destiny like he prepared for executive power uh, much before he had it um and in um you would call it nationalist, you could call it an internationalist as well, because he didn't see any dichotomy uh, between the two. But he was engaged in you know, going to these uh, anti-imperial imperialist congresses in Brussels, uh, you know, hanging out with George Lansbury, who was a kind of radical labor MP, uh, who, by the way, presented the first ever um, uh, sort of, um, I think it was called this constitution of India bill or something in nineteen twenty five which had been drafted by a bunch of people. Uh, And he presented in in the British Parliament. Um, So Nehru was very much, uh, saw himself as representing India, and he developed this kind of vision uh, of what India would represent on the global stage, but that also necessarily involved thinking about what India would be in and of itself. So he had very much a kind of conception that uh, went further um, and Um, deeper than anything that uh, his compatriots had thought of. Um, So if you examine him in comparison with his compatriots, uh, what you see is that there's actually not much thinking going on there at all. There's no real conviction behind what India... Everyone wants India to be independent, right? They want the British to leave. uh, But everyone wants the British to leave. The princes also want the British to leave. uh, um, But... That didn't, or at least uh, hasn't yet, made them into Indian nationalists. Although some would make, would go far as to make, uh, make that claim. So, but unlike everyone else who has no real conviction as to what India will be after the British are gone, Nehru very much does have, uh, uh, does have an idea, and it, you could say it's a bit unidimensional. He's obsessed with socialism, so you know it would be socialist, and it will be internationalist because he's into international socialism um, and you know and all of these things. But it, there is still something there, which is more than what can be said for all of the other um, uh, leaders of the Communist Party.
0: Yeah, I think you cannot accuse Nehru of not having a grand narrative. That is one thing he clearly had. It is quite obvious. Anybody who does any reading of Nehru would know that he always had a grand narrative. He... And, and that stems... I mean, it's impossible to be as narcissistic as Nehru and not have a grand narrative. That would be kind of silly in my view. But I mean, you need to have some sort of a grand plan if you're going to be so much about yourself and everything about your image. You have to have it. And kudos to Nehru. I mean, I may disagree with his plan, but, you know, full marks to Nehru that he had that. But now I want to spend uh, the, the the latter half and uh, because uh, I'm aware of the time too. Let's talk about Nehru and Patel. Look, Shama Prasad Mukherjee and... Uh, uh, and Nehru obviously too and we'll mix in both of them now uh, the interesting thing is where Siddharth Patel starts saying that look if you want me to leave I'll leave it, it's a way it, basically that's the kind of a message that I could gather and and um, Jawaharlal Nehru says oh I can't believe you're doing this to me I mean, he completely flips it around on him. It is always like a very Bollywood movie. Tumne mujhe dhoka diya kind of a thing. And then I can almost see a Bollywood music background track playing and Nehru writing this letter kind of a thing. It was so, it was like, Nehru is shocked. Oh, tumne mujhe dhoka diya, kind of a thing. I mean, Nehru was really good at flipping it around and putting it on Sardar Patel in emotional blackmail. Did that come across to you guys too? <laughs> um, I mean, in, in
1: that sense, Nehru had learned from, uh, from Gandhi Um, who was was very similar, so, um, uh, I mean, that's also what Gandhi did to Patel all his his life, so Patel's life is uh, the sort of, um, you know, the axis of Patel's political life is uh, based on loyalty to Gandhi, Um, so he ultimately also, his loyalty to Nehru is very much framed in those terms, like Patel challenges Nehru and also stymies him in many cases, but he never Has a clean break with him. The closest they come to a clean break was uh, just before Gandhi's assassination, Uh, but you know that's patched up because Gandhi is assassinated, and uh, then just before uh, Patel dies, which is when they come the closest to a break uh, over the question of Nehru's attitude towards foreign policy, but particularly towards China, but. you're right. The the does flip it constantly uh, into, you know, how, how can you do this to me? And, you know, we'd spoken about this in 1948 and so on and so forth. But what's also important to remember that uh, both of them are frequently threatened to resign and neither of them do. So this, uh, you know, neither of them actually wants to resign either. Uh, this is like a kind of tactic um, that they're using and they use it repeatedly. And, uh, you know, but he'll die, and Nehru still keeps using it, right? He uses it against Dundan and says, well, I'll resign. If you don't You know, resign as president, I'll resign as prime minister. Uh, uh, and he uses it with the um, president, Rajendra Prasad, as well. You know, if you don't do this, I'm going to resign. Um, so, you know, there's about three, two or three threats of resignation every year um, over something or the other. Um, and, I mean, it's quite obvious that Nehru doesn't want to resign. Otherwise, there's nothing to... I mean, he doesn't even resign when he's... Incapacitated after a, um, you know, after the sixty-two war when he and then he has like a um, stroke was and uh, he has a stroke and he's you know partially incapacitated etc. He he there isn't even a thought to resigning or to appointing a deputy. Um,
2: so, and in, a, in a in a strange way, both men also recognize um, that they, in a very strange way, are reliant on one another. Yeah. Um, but deal. One has to think of Padil more as like a party man. So he's not like this popular guy who goes out, gives big speeches. He doesn't have the
1: charisma. He
2: doesn't have the same charisma. So he's reliant on somebody like Nehru who can go out and you know get all the people to cheer. But at the same time, Nehru is also not somebody who can build like big bridges within the Congress party, which is something that Padil can do because he commands authority both within the moderate wing, the conservative moderate wing of the Congress party, and he demands um um, respect from the vertical wing, because he's also spent his time in jail. So, but is this very interesting figure that bridges a lot of um, fractions within the Congress party, So from the Mahasabha to, you know, the communists. He can converse with all of them. Um, whereas Nehru doesn't have it in him to actually create these sort of grand um, alliances. I mean, partly because, I mean, partly the reason that the Congress party, after his demise, you know, splintered in so many directions. East because he wasn't able to create like a yeah. singular narrative to actually hold this um, big juggernaut together yeah. in any way. And with Dale, I think particularly, like it was Gandhi to a large extent that led him to um, have this loyalty to this, um, again, very young politician that, you know, um, Gandhi had handpicked to um, more or less lead the party but it's also that um he sees something in nehru that he does that he thinks will be that that he thinks will be beneficial in order to lead india in a way that he can't
0: yeah uh, it's very interesting you guys mentioned in the book in a line i remember that patel for patel the line was very clear he would not interfere in foreign policy until and unless the national security of india was at stake if i remember correctly you guys do mention that in the book. And that seems to be the essence of Patel, uh, that, you know, he would not interfere until uh, and he had an inkling of a line. But obviously, uh, look, politicians are going to play politics. It's not like Sardar Patel would not play politics. But at the end of the day, that, that's just the way it is. But now let's get into something that I'm very passionate about, which is free speech in India. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, I'll refrain my, I'll rephrase myself. The lack of free speech in India. Well, we, India does not have free speech. If anybody was wondering, uh, please read uh, what happens in this book. Uh, now, obviously, triple you have written uh, a far more detailed book, and we've had a discussion about that book. But still, there are a few things that, you know, kind of stand out to me in this entire exchange. Um, Obviously, this is a parliamentary exchange that uh, you guys have recorded and presented in this book uh, between, you know, Nehru and Shama Prasad Mukherjee. I have to say, Tripur, the some of the lines that he, you know, kind of uh, says uh, in his speech, uh, you know, Jawala Nehru. I mean, <laughs> he sounds exactly like people who are anti-free speech today. It's like, oh, what will happen if this is said? Oh, what will happen if that is said? Yes, the press should be free, but dot, 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 full stop, punctuation mark, comma, this, that. There are so many conditions in the whole thing. I mean, if you could pick up Tripur, and it doesn't matter, you're a BJP politician, you're a Congress politician, you're a Samajwadi politician, you're a TMC politician in India. Everybody has the same line. Everybody. And it's almost as if they have picked up Jawaharlal Nehru's parliament speech on the First Amendment and they have said, So what do you guys make of that? <laughs> um, I mean, so that, again, as, as we argue, Nehru was, is at one point, of course, at one level, he's
1: just uh, presenting his views. But at another level, by virtue of who he is, Nehru is also shaping uh, the kind of powers uh, of, the, of, the, of, of his office uh, and setting a kind of normative template as to what um, is kosher or not. And in that sense, this is a very far reaching debate because it um, establishes a certain kind of precedent um, which is never undone. Right, so we're talking about 70, uh, 70 odd years now, um, over seventy years, and 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 it has never been undone, and the uh, template is deployed repeatedly because you know if you think of some of the things he says, which is like you know, oh, if people read this, you know, what will be the effect of reading this type of material on the soldiers, uh, and what will be the um, uh, effect on you know the youth, and um, and quite typically also. You know, it's impossible now to distinguish between news that is real and news that is fake. Um, So uh, it, you know, again, it's it's an ongoing debate, and it's also framed in in the same terms. But what you notice, like you mentioned, at the outset, is that things seem to have flipped one eighty degrees, if uh, if Mm -hmm. if if anything. And it was funny because recently, when they uh, when the new Bill to regulate uh, cryptocurrency was introduced in parliament. Um, The prime minister, um, Modi, uh, framed it in terms of saying, oh, but you know, you know, what will happen to our youth? Our youth, you know, their morality needs to be protected and, you know, so on and so forth. And this idea that actually individuals do not have uh, a a kind of independent capacity to uh, judge for themselves as to what. Yeah, no, cannot be in their own interest, um, is constitutes like a hugely unifying um force in, in India and always has done.
0: Yeah, you, you know, I remember a famous conversation. I'm not gonna tell you the name of the politician, it's a member of parliament in India. I had this famous chat with them once, you know, they said, nah, Log uh, nadan kind of thing. You know, people are stupid and naive. I was like, yeah, people might be stupid and naive, but politicians forget they're also people obviously the politician did not like when i said that and 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 i had that uh, unique pleasure of having a politician looking at me in a very weird way for 30 seconds I, and this is a typical case of politicians uh, i don't know what happens is you know there is this weird sort of thing that happens to you when you become a politician you know everybody else does not have the answer but i the leader the chosen one when I suddenly enter the parliament, I am the repository of all knowledge and I need to protect everything. I mean, what uh, again, it, it, it has to be mentioned, Tripur, that the word reasonable rest- words, reasonable restrictions were also added on the insistence of others, not Jawaharlaleru. I mean, shocker of shocks. And, and, and. Uh, the, this needs to be told to ev- to the Nehruvians the most that, you know, whom seem to say they love free speech, they need to go by. Kam kam restri- his whole idea was just, you know, clamp it all down. I don't like what's happening. But then how does Shama Prasad Mukherjee come across in all of this? Because, where did he get these ideas? I mean, I clearly remember where uh, somebody interjects him in the parliament and says that, oh, but what about this? What if, you know, things get out of hand? And Shama Prasad Mukherjee in a very nonchalant way says, but I don't think they're getting out of hand. It's, it's almost as if uh, it's counterintuitive to him. And he says it's just an excuse for the state to ram down everyone. And, and the Nehruvian state was very consistent. It was going after you know, papers in Punjab. It was going after communist papers. It was obviously going after the RSS, like a house on fire. Um, uh, but do you think, so where do you think Nehru's ideas of free speech came from? Were they uh, in any way inspired by any Western nation, for England? It can't be America because the American First Amendment and, the, and what Nehru believes are completely chalk and cheese. But where do you think he gets this idea from?
2: I mean, Nehru gets this idea very clearly from old school liberal debates that, you know, he studied in England. This is where he gets the idea from. But now we have to see Nehru not just as a Western trained barrister who sort of returns to India, but as somebody who stands in a line of many other anti-colonial leaders that brought their countries into freedom and then very quickly climbed down on the constitution and almost gave themselves, not almost, gave themselves Dicatorial, dictatorial powers. powers. So if you look at much of Africa, if you look at Southeast Asia, what happens is that the people who are in a similar position like Nehru, they all go full on dictatorial. So Nehru didn't you know, live up to the constitution in the way as um, um, maybe only a very committed constitutionalist can, but his group of comparison... Um, has done and fared much worse. So if we look at Pakistan, if we look at other places, it's gone um, it's it's been uh, it's it's gone much worse for most countries. So for Nehru, yes, it wasn't the pristine move to amend the Constitution and amend free speech in the way that he did. But at the same time, um given these sort of powers that he had, um, particularly after the three most critical challenges to his rule had left, Jinnah had gone to Pakistan and created his own nation state. Gandhi was dead, Patel was dead. There was nobody else left to challenge him. So he could have gone much, much further, which he didn't. And I know that's a weak sort of um, excuse for Jinnah's actions, and I'm not trying to sort of excuse them in any way. But just if we want to understand him, we should also compare him to other post-colonial yeah. um, leaders and they haven't really done a much better job and their nehu actually looks quite good
0: but then how did he offer Shamar Prasad mukharji obviously this was all previous to that uh, a cabinet position
1: uh i mean to create a big tent but also I, he was encouraged into that by uh, by Gandhi. um it was a similar way to offering a position to Ambedkar, actually uh, what what you see is that the, once the glue holding all of this together uh, goes, which you see very very firmly with Patel, um, but all of these people leave. Um, I mean, you have the resignations of uh Prasad Mukherjee and K C Niyogi over the nehru Pact and the relationship with Pakistan. Uh, you have the resignation of um, uh, John Mathai, who was uh, Nehru's finance minister, who resigns over, you know, the creation of the Planning Commission and then also over Nehru's own sort of, um, you know, slightly authoritarian sort of, uh, you know, idea of riding roughshod over his cabinet. So, um, you know, John Mathai and also Pakistan uh, and then Patel, Patel dies and then Ambedkar resigns soon after and Ambedkar has a host of reasons for uh, for resigning. So, you um, Nehru there, there, there did offer uh, places in his cabinet to all of these people, um, but it's also important to remember that this was a kind of very short lived uh, sort of experiment. It fell apart very, very quickly. Um, and not just after Patel's death, actually, you have a mass exodus more or less uh, of the Congress right. So the kind of conservative element in the Congress. Uh, leaves entirely. Some of it goes initially to the Swatantra Party, and later on, a lot of it kind of coalesces um, around the Bharatya Jansang and then later the PJP. And that's actually Nehru's inability to really hold the Congress together. Um, including the old-style Gandhians, they leave, all of them leave as well. You have the kind of departure of the kind of Gandhian socialists like J.P. Narayan, uh, and then you have also have the departure of uh, people like Kriplani. Ultimately, um, what's left in the Congress is the uh, uh, is the like non-radical left uh, is all that's left in the Nairobi Congress. The rest kind of all leave. It splinters after Patel's death
0: true so guys uh, let's wrap things up so before we wrap it up so any last comments from uh, from both of you so so maybe we can end like this so what did you guys uh, come across what were your uh, maybe last sentiments when you obviously because jwala leheru was the center of this book so so maybe uh, adil i'll go to you first what what were your kind of uh, overall sentiments once you finished this work about jwala leheru i mean i think after reading a lot
2: of Nehru's correspondence and, and, and writing and writing on him, um, I think I developed more of a soft spot for Nehru than I had before. Because before I had this guy who I thought was single-handedly sort of leading um, India into separation and into partition because of his inability to sort of stick to the pact that had already been struck by Maulana Azad, you know, the old story with the cabinet mission plan. But now after reading him, I got the sense that he was very much deeply and passionately involved in issues um, regarding Muslim solidarity, religious belonging, to a much stronger extent than I ever thought. So for me, Nehru has um, not quite emerged as this um, sort of hero, as Nehruvians would have it, but as somebody that one can actually look up to as a political leader. And I'm curious to hear what you... (laughs) <laughs> what do you uh, notice? No, I mean this book is
1: also very much an attempt to uh, to humanize uh, Nehru, to look at him, uh, and that's why it's important to look at him in the context of his contemporaries and engaging with them uh, is because he uh, didn't develop in isolation. Right, Nehru was not someone who just ascended from heaven and said, "You know, I you know, everything has been revealed to me." Um, so this was this book is very much an attempt to humanize Nehru, and I think it does that. And it also did it for us because to see him uh, kind of engage on that level and get into the nitty-gritties of uh, um, of uh, of these issues uh, was also very much to, very much to see Nehru the man, and he was a very complex man. As uh, um, you know, we quote one of his biographers, B. R. Nanda, to say, "Well, everybody thought a lot of things. You know, the um, for the conservatives he was like a Marxist, but for the Marxists he was." Uh, you know, not radical enough for big business. He was too radical, and uh, so he was. You know, he was many things to many people, and um, to be able to humanize someone like that, he's he's a man who's had an outsized impact on uh, uh, on the world, for better or for worse. You know, even uh, whether you love him or hate him, even those who hate him and blame him for everything, ultimately, uh, you're paying him a backhanded compliment because to, by saying that, you know, he's. He's so central to everything, um, and but I think for me the most important bit was, uh, as Adil said, you know, it really humanized him, and it, you develop a sense of sympathy uh, even if for where he's coming from and what he's doing, even if you disagree profoundly mm. um, uh, with uh, with him, as um, is apparent. You know, we do disagree with him on many uh, counts, but we you know sympathize with uh, with where he's coming from.
0: Yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from. The, but to me, the one thing that stood out, um, you know, was this one one reply that Shama Prasad Mukherjee, and maybe we'll end today's chat with that. Um, you know, Shama Prasad Mukherjee says, I do not know why he has thrown up this challenge. Is it due to fear? Does he feel that he is incapable today to carry on the administration of the country unless he's clothed in, with more and more powers to be arbitrarily utilized so that his will may be the last word on the subject? Or is it his doubt in the wisdom of the people whose champion he has been all his life? Does he feel that the people of India have run amok and cannot be trusted with the freedom that has been given to them? What is it that he has in his mind? I was hearing the explanation that he was giving, explanation which, if I may say so, cannot stand the test of a moment's scrutiny. He has spoken a number of times and said that, after all, what he's doing is simply to clothe parliament with permissive power that he is trusting parliament. But is he really trusting parliament? Is he giving the members of parliament full liberty to decide questions? As we understand it, it is something different. He is treating this matter as a purely party question. And, uh, you know, there are many such lines in this book. Nehru, uh, if you read this book, and these are my assessments, not the authors. When you read this book, you cannot help but have a very mixed worldview about Nehru. He was clearly someone... At least that's what comes across in his exchanges with Jinnah, at times very naive. But also, it's quite clear he was a modernist. He believed in modernity. Now, you can say his his understanding of modernity may not be your understanding of modernity. And and that's fine. But he clearly believed in taking India forward and moving forward and having a a worldview that is devoid. He clearly hated Hinduism far more (laughs) than he hated anything else. That is also quite clear. Uh, and, you know, it, it it is what it is. Now, he was the first prime minister of India. He had a disproportionately larger impact on Indian polity, um, something that I'm not comfortable with, with personally, but I would not be comfortable with any one individual's disproportionate impact on Indian polity, whether it's Jawaharlal Nehru or Narendra Modi. And that is just me. I'm just a libertarian who doesn't like government, but that's just me. We'll end today's discussion on this note. Once again, guys, both of you, thanks for writing this book it was a wonderful uh, book i had a great time i finished it off in two days you know once i started reading it i was i just kept on reading 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 and i finished it off in two days so thanks a lot for coming on the podcast
1: thank you for having us thank you very much kishan it's been a it's been a great pleasure
0: All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. So please go and buy this book. If you are watching this on YouTube or you're going to be listening to the audio only version, go into the description of the podcast and you will see a link to buy this book. Please go and buy it, especially if you're an Indian or a Pakistani. You should understand what debates went on when we were going through this entire process. And if you like the podcast, you know the drill. Please, you know, become a member on YouTube or go on Patreon or you can buy the merch or send your donations directly through UPI. I'll see you next week with another discussion. Until then, namaste, take care, goodbye.